Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, I hope you're having the kind of week doing work you love. You know, as we approach the end of the year, we're seeing this is a great time to be planning for the new year already. This is the time to be planning for what you want 2012 to look like. And yes, we don't just wait on circumstances. We don't wait to see what the economy does. You decide now. I decide now what we want the new year to look like. And guess what we're going to see when the new year rolls around? Exactly what we have been planning and working toward and seeing already happening. Well, this is Dan Miller. We're going to spend the next little bit talking about some of the questions that you, the listeners, have submitted. And they, as always, are extremely interesting. Here are some of the things we'll be covering in today's show. How do you stop feeling the guilt of moving on from a ministry job? Tough kind of question. How do you focus on one idea to implement when you've got loads of ideas spinning around in your head? Here's one a gentleman asked, how can a loser like me better myself? Somebody says, I'm called to help the homeless, but I can't keep my own bills paid. How can I make this work? I'm interested in exploiting my writing and speaking ability to establish an income. How do I do that? I'm currently a teacher, but I'm not completely happy or fulfilled in this position. How do I stay engaged to work when I've lost interest and my boss is difficult to deal with? Well, you can identify your own situation in some of those, I'm sure. Each week I pick out some of the questions that seem to address things that are common questions, common interest that identify situations we all have been in or are in currently. And we'll look at some solutions. How do you move on? How do you really move into or create work that you love? Work that is fulfilling, meaningful, purposeful and profitable is it possible in today's environment absolutely went to a conference recently where the presenter after any point it trained his audience to shout absolutely well i think it's a healthy kind of process if you uh, do you think that you can find work that you love absolutely do you think that if you can't find a job you can create something where you uh, start generating significant income absolutely I want you to think like that. If you got a question, you can um, go to the podcast link in 48days.com. Leave your question there. I'll be happy to include it in an upcoming show. Now, here's, here's a couple things that I wanted to just address before I get started. Uh, thanks for uh, the notes that I got about last week's uh, show where I titled it Know Thyself. And rather than just dealing with questions, I dealt with some of the philosophical and spiritual issues about knowing yourself. Uh, whenever I step into spiritual theological territory, I know that I'm going to get a lot of criticism. You know, surprisingly for this one, I did not. So the one I know thyself where I went pretty deeply into some spiritual arenas, uh, people seem to accept uh, pretty readily. At least I didn't hear from the ones who hated it. At least uh, I'm not opposed to that. You can tell me what you think at any given time, but I didn't hear from a lot of haters in last week's show where I talked about know thyself and in knowing yourself, we're going to find a unique path that takes us into unique, not only unique work, but also unique forms of spiritual expression. It's going to draw us to different kinds of churches, 
Churches have personalities. There's not one right one out there. Where we go to church says a lot about who we are, our own personality, our likes and dislikes, and so on. A couple other things. We've got a, a workshop coming up, something that we've never done before. We're calling it an Eagles Club Intensive. It's going to be eight hours with me walking you through how to find work, that is meaningful, how to understand yourself, the 85% of the process of looking inside, figuring out what you're really suited for, what you should have as a clear focus, and then having identified that, how to go out and find work that embraces that. I'm going to be going through that process. Never done this before. We're going to carve out two Saturday mornings starting November the 5th will be the first one, then November the 12th will be the following one. You don't have to be present, but you can listen in live if you want to. You can get more details about that. Just go to the 48days.com or 48days.net site. We've got banners up there, the eight hours with Dan and Eagles Club Intensive, or you can go to 48days.com forward slash eight hours with Dan. That's eight, the number hours with Dan and get information on that. We'd love to work with you through that process. Going to make it very affordable rather than being uh, quite expensive, which my one-on-one coaching is. This is going to be a process to include you in a group, small group process, but make it very affordable. We'd love to talk to you about that. Had a conversation this week with a gentleman who wanted to share his business idea with me. He's an insurance executive. He's been working in the same company for quite some time, very respected there, makes well over six-figure income consistently but he has this entrepreneurial itch he really wants to be an entrepreneur he's got a site up where he talks about being an entrepreneur and talks about the constraints of working for a company blah 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 and you need to get out here on your own and really go get it well here's his plan here's his plan he talks to a lot of young guys who have great ideas and he says man if these young i get these young guys would just have some money put into their ideas. You know, they could go on and be very successful, be the next Bill Gates, the next Michael Dell or Richard Branson or whatever. So his idea is this. He wants to create an incubator for these entrepreneurs. He's discovered a friend of his who has very deep pockets. The guy's a bazillionaire and he's committed two, $3 million, whatever it takes to get this idea off the ground where my friend would then lease a warehouse, let's say, and he would divide it up into office space and he would bring in these young creative guys and gals in there, give them office space, give them support staff and everything. He would also structure his own income out of that, you know, figuring that you know, it would take a couple million dollars, you know, to, to have his own income built into that and this would be an entrepreneurial incubator. Well, I said, you know what? There's nothing entrepreneurial about what you've described at all. All you're doing is looking for another way to have somebody give you a paycheck. And you're doing the same thing for what you call these young entrepreneurs, these kids with great ideas. The worst thing in the world you can do is throw money at them at that stage. If they really are entrepreneurs, they're going to grow their idea and see that it really can be successful. I mean, money shouldn't come until you're way down the pike. I said, there's nothing entrepreneurial about what you're describing for you or the people that you say you want to help. All you're doing is just creating jobs, job for yourself and a job for them. That's not an entrepreneurial process. I mean, that, that is like you see a cocoon on a tree, 
all right the thing has been there all winter and the cocoon is that little wrapped round gray thing and now it's suddenly starting to see have some cracks there and you know that there's a beautiful butterfly in there and so you decide i'm going to help them out I'm going to make it easy for him to get out rather than having him struggle for a couple of days to get out of there. I'm going to help him out. So you cut it open. Well, what do you get? You don't get a beautiful butterfly. You get this bulbous kind of gross, slimy, half worm, half something else object that never develops into anything. It just kind of hangs around there. And in a few hours, it dies. You haven't done it any favor at all. It needs to go through the struggling process of getting out of the cocoon that forces blood out into the extremities and that forces, uh, you know, the, everything that needs to be done to create those beautiful wings that then become a butterfly. The struggle is an absolutely essential part of the process with entrepreneurs. It is as well. You can't short circuit that process of initial struggle and end up with an entrepreneur. You give somebody like that money, you bring in venture capitalists, the entrepreneur loses control of the idea. Now the only thing that matters is the bottom line. It's not the thrill of the idea anymore. It's just how are we going to produce profits for the shareholders? And those guys burn out very quickly and we see them leaving the ideas they thought were their own and moving on to something else. I mean, Mark Sanborn has a new book out. Mark wrote The Fred Factor, got a new book titled Up, Down, or Sideways, How to Succeed When Times Are Good, Bad, or In Between. But Mark says, money provides the means, but not the skills. Money doesn't make somebody more skillful. It might provide the means. But if you really want to be an entrepreneur, embrace the struggle, the process of getting you out of the cocoon on your own. I've talked to a lot of people over the years who have started their own businesses and without exception, they look back and say, you know what? It would have been a disaster if somebody would have given me money in those early years. I needed to go through the struggle to figure out what really worked and one didn't. So you can get an artificial sense of what works. You cannot get an artificial sense that your idea is great. If somebody drops a couple million dollars in your pocket, you can go for a long time just spending that money. And that's what happened back in the dot-com era where people would raise venture capital. They blow through $40 million and end up with nothing and think, you know, gee, how could I have been so wrong? Well, they sabotaged the process, the opportunity for success with their idea by simply having somebody throw money at it. Well, we could go all day on that. I won't do that. I'm going to move on into the questions again. This is Dan Miller. You're listening to 48 days online radio. If you got a question, I'd be happy to include it in an upcoming show. You can do that at the podcast link on 48days.com. Well, Mel has, Mel, th- this is really just kind of a testimonial, but I wanted to share it because it's uh, every once in a while I like to include one of these. It's a great uh, way for you to hear it from somebody out there in the streets, not just from me, where you think, well, it's easy for you to say, you know, sitting in your ivory tower or whatever. Nah, I'm in the game with all of you, but I like to share these kind of comments as well. This comes from Mel in Apex, North Carolina, who says, not in this economy, question mark. He says, Dan, about a month ago, I decided it was time to change jobs. I've read 48 days and taught it at my church, so I was already familiar with my skills, abilities, talents, and passions. I forwarded my resume to a contact who worked for a company I was interested in. Four weeks later, I was sitting in the hiring manager's office interviewing for a position the company created so they could bring me on board. 
In just over 30 days from sending my resume, I had my dream job. This just provides that if you have the skills and talents that a company needs, they will create a position to do whatever it takes to hire you, even in this economy. Thanks for all you do, Mel. Well, Mel, thanks for your note. I love hearing those. Never get tired of hearing those inspirational stories. People ask me sometimes, I've been traveling the last couple of weeks with different speaking kind of opportunities and people come up and they say, well, I'm sure you're probably, you know, tired of hearing stories like this. I was at a, a book signing, one of Dave Ramsey's book signings the other day for his new book, Entree Leadership, and had a couple grab me and they told me about their daughter who really resisted any kind of input in her frustrating job search. And they insisted that she read 48 days to the work you love. And in 47 days, she got her absolute dream job. And this is a very high level technical job, very unique, small number of opportunities in that arena. And she couldn't believe that it actually happened. And they said, I'm, you know, she talked about writing you a note to tell you that, but she's, sure that you get thousands and you know aren't interested in anymore and i said oh that's not true i love hearing those stories i never get tired of hearing those kind of stories about how somebody you know took maybe what i said or wrote and it just gave them the inspiration to move forward and do what needed to be done to go to that next level of success never get tired well again thanks mel ricardo says Hi, Dan. How do you focus on one idea to implement when you when you have loads of ideas spinning around in your head? Well, Ricardo, having loads of ideas is a wonderful place to start. I mean, that's a much more desirable place to start than not having even one idea. I mean, that just boggles my mind when I talk to people and they can't come up with one idea for something they would do. So having lots of ideas is a great place to start. But here's how to use that starting point effectively. Allow yourself to just Dream, brainstorm, nothing is too unrealistic or impractical. I mean, add to the list of ideas for the first few days. All right. When you get 20 ideas, then kind of draw a line in the sand. Okay. So for the next 30 days, you're going to explore those. You're going to weigh those ideas against what you know about yourself. Again, the way to have the confidence of a proper direction in your career is to spend 85% of the time looking at yourself. So you understand clearly your unique skills and abilities, your personality tendencies, your values, dreams, and passions, those create a filter then for those ideas. So then you filter those 20 ideas through what you know about yourself and you narrow down to the three or four that would really fit you best. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with the economy, with hot new technology. It's just, what is it that fits you best? I mean, stay focused on that. Once you've identified the three or four ideas that fit you best, then do a little more research on those. But over the period of another 10 days or so, narrow down to the best one. Create a plan of action and act. That's how you take lots of ideas and you narrow down. It may seem artificial. You may be telling yourself, well, I know I could do 10 of those other ideas and have fun and do well financially as well. That may be true, but you can't do 20 things at once. So even if it feels like you're artificially closing the door and some things you know you could do and enjoy, do that. Narrow down, create a focus. That's the way you have extraordinary success. Now keep in mind also, people who are creative, people who are artistic, people who are entrepreneurial, you never close the door totally on an idea. 
you may find a way three years from now to integrate one of those other 19 ideas and have that be part of your ongoing success. Or you may be ready at that point to expand. I mean, when I started out planning the business that I wanted to have, I had all these different arenas, ways that I wanted to create money. And I knew that I couldn't do them all at once. So I started with one. I started with coaching as that developed to be very profitable. Then I was able to back off on that a little bit and introduce one more thing. You know, that could have been speaking or live events. I mean, some of the other things that I introduced, but I introduced those one at a time, not all at once, even there where every idea fuels the activity in the next area. They're all under the same umbrella. Even there, I don't want to be doing more than one at a time in the development stage. Well, here now, I'm not going to give the name here, but the reader says, Dan, I've spent a major portion of the past couple of days feeling worthless. I was called into the HR office of my work and told that I was going to have to take a significant cut in pay. Being almost 56 years old and having to go through nine months of unemployment last year, I feel this latest setback has caused me to let my family down. My largest asset is my voice, but that and a dollar and 50 cents may get you a cup of coffee. I don't have much time to work on self-improvement as my family has me busy during my free time. I also realize that people over the age of 50 can be discriminated against and that employers can get by with it. How can a loser like me better myself? Well, the idea of being a loser is not something that comes from the world that we live in. It's not something that comes from outside. It's something that comes from between our own two ears. If circumstances determine your sense of worth, you'll always be extremely vulnerable. You'll be like a ball in a pinball machine. You go this direction, boom, something happens. You just go off in another random direction. That's not the way you want to live your life. You want to be focused. If the particular application, the particular job that you're in now is not a good fit, go through the job search. You don't have to burn any bridges. Don't stop. Don't quit today, but go through another job search. I mean, obviously you went through a job search. It got you a position you have now. You can do that again. You can do that repeatedly. So you're not limited. You're not trapped in what you're doing now. If it's turned out to be less than fulfilling, you can do that again. But be very careful about allowing circumstances or being told by HR that you're going to have to take a pay cut. I mean, there's a lot of things that contribute to that. I mean, there are companies that are struggling. Maybe they're in a dying market. I mean, if you're working for a publisher, or a video game store and they tell you you're going to have to take a cut and pay. Trust me, it probably has nothing to do with your competence. It has to do with the industry they're in. It's drying up. If you work for a major newspaper and they tell you have to take a cut and pay, man, you better count your lucky stars. You got any kind of a paycheck at all. Cause a whole lot of people that were working in that industry last year, no longer have any kind of a paycheck. So don't allow those external things to determine your sense of worth or how much you have to offer. Stay very clear on your most marketable skills and what your value is, and then find opportunities out there, organizations that in fact line up with what you know your value is. You know, go back and grab the old book by Zig Ziglar, one of my favorites. We used it for our kids, and I certainly have recommended it thousands of times. That's See You at the Top. Very simple book, See You at the Top, but how to get your thinking squared away so that you do have a positive sense of self-worth, not some just artificial positive mental thinking that you ignore reality, 
but how you really do get your positive self-esteem in line with, you know, where it ought to be. So you can hold your head high, move forward with confidence. See you at the top, Zig Ziglar. Well, just a reminder, this is Dan Miller. You're listening to 48 Days Online Radio. If you got a question you'd like for me to include, just go to 48days.com. Click on the podcast link. You can leave your question there. Sheila from Cleveland, Ohio says, Dan, I'm a licensed master's level social worker who was laid off last year in March. I work part-time and I'm struggling due to not making half of what I made my government job. I'm trying desperately to start a program that will provide housing and supportive services to homeless teens and young adults. I've been encouraged to go make it a for-profit or LLC rather than a nonprofit. Can I provide this service and be successful enough to leave my current job? I believe that everything I've experienced in life has led me to, to this calling. I was born in public housing to a crippled mother, had my first child at 16 years old, dropped out of high school, but here I am three degrees later working on a PhD in human services. I know I will accomplish this, but I'm confused as to how. Here's what I would suggest. I would suggest, Sheila, that you get yourself into a position where you give out of a full cup, not an empty one. It's tough to ask for money to help the homeless when you're really asking for money to keep yourself from being homeless too. I mean, that's a weak position to be in. If you're close to having a PhD, you should be able to take care of your own needs and have access to help the homeless. And again, don't think that the homeless need to be given food and shelter. Now, that's a touchy issue, but um, you might pick up a book when, when helping hurts. It talks about this issue. I mean, we cripple people and keep them homeless and poor by giving them too much. Work toward involving them in the process of helping themselves. Equip them to become self-sustaining. Don't think that you're doing them a service by just giving them services, food, shelter over a long period of time. Well, Jim from Ontario, California says, Dan, I'm looking forward to retiring from high school teaching in the next five to eight years. Three years ago, when I earned a master's degree in educational leadership, I discovered I was a very good writer. At least that's what my professors and my advisor told me. So I had an article published and wrote a chapter for a yet to be published book on leadership that two professors plan to publish. I'm interested in exploiting my writing and speaking ability to establish an income so that whenever I do retire, I can step right into my next career. I will not be able to attend your writing workshop in the near future, but would be interested in any ideas you might have for me. Thanks for your help, Jim. Well, y'all, Jim, I, you know, I'd love for you to be able to come to our right to the bank conference. I mean, we do those three times a year. The dates for 2012 are listed out on our site at 48days.com. And there we really do help you learn how to take your writing and turn that into an income stream. Let me read one more here that's really related to this, and then I'll comment a little broader. This comes from uh, Farnoosh. Farnoosh, I guess, is the name. I recognize her from being very active on 48days.net. Um, Cary, North Carolina. Dan, I'm thrilled to have found you. Thanks to our mutual friend, Cliff Ravenscraft. In May of 2011, I left my 11 plus year corporate job finally. And now I'm working as a blogger, author, two Kindle books, coach, 
online entrepreneur. My blog is prolificliving.com. I've created a few digital products, eBooks, info guide, video products, Kindle books, two regular podcasts. I'm now working on a course to help people who are miserable in their corporate jobs, identify the signs and create a smart exit strategy. And I love every single minute of it. My question, I can't seem to get the sustainable momentum that I crave. I have a few sales, but then nothing consistent. I'm active in my reader, follower communities, right? Guest post often active in social media, 48days.net and so on. I practice more inbound marketing than in your face style. Anything you can suggest. Thank you. Now your question relates to the previous question where Jim was saying he had a chance to write and he now has written a chapter that's going to be part of a published book by a couple professors. Here's how that's likely to develop. You have a book, it's published by a couple professors. Uh, they say, let's say they sell 10,000 copies of that. That would not be unusual. And as a matter of fact, that may be pretty good for a book published by a couple professors. Out of that, if you wrote a chapter, uh, you're likely to get, let's just be real generous and say that you're going to get 50 cents per book. I mean, that would be high on the high end at, in what you would get from one book sale where you wrote a chapter, but let's just say it's 50 cents. So they sold 10,000 copies. You're going to get $5,000. Now you can see that's not going to change your financial future a whole lot. And that's pretty typical for somebody who writes a book or contributes to a book like that. When we look at the average book sales out there, most authors of a published book are going to get maybe five or $6,000. So what we encourage writers to do now, certainly we want to, we want to help you learn how to sell a whole lot more books than that. I mean, Dave Ramsey and I, I was talking to Dave this morning. He just finished his phenomenal tour for the introduction for the launch of Entree Leadership. And of course, Dave was using, you know, corporate jets and uh, limousines and, uh, golly, state highway patrol escorts and his tour bus. I mean, he had a lot of resources behind the launch of his book. And when it went to number one on the New York times bestseller, and certainly those kind of things can do that. Obviously most writers are not in a position where they can put those kind of funds into an initial launch, but there are a lot of things you can do. I mean, the things that Varnoosh is talking about here, getting involved in social networks, blogging regularly, doing guest blogs. Those are great things to drive traffic, to build your own audience, or any product that then you would produce. What we encourage you to do though, in my own business, I have what's called a Venn diagram as the model A Venn diagram. It's three interconnected circles in the center of those where all three circles overlap is my writing. Yes, that is the primary thing that I do at this point, but it takes a very long time for writing to become a real income generator a very long time. If you are working with a publisher and you start today and you have your ideas pretty well formulated, but that's going to turn into a book, you're looking at two years to have a book that is going to produce any kind of income at all. In the meantime, as a writer, you need to come up with other things that you're going to do that will in fact create income. And Farnoosh already kind of implied some of those things, but you need to consider speaking. Can you take the core concepts of your writing and speak and then position yourself as a paid speaker? I mean, you can create a lot of income as a speaker 
if in fact you've got a hot topic and know how to market yourself as a speaker. You may do live events like we do. You may do workshops or seminars where you're presenting the core principles of your, what you're writing about and again, have attendees. And if you can fill a room and you charge $269 and have 30 people show up, you're going to create a chunk of income from doing that. You can coach like a couple of people have suggested here on the topics that you're going to write about. You can have a website where you're getting affiliate fees from other people. You can have product sales, even, even beyond the products that you yourself have created. You can find lots of things out there, well-written books that were never marketed well, get them out of discount liquidation or directly from the publisher where you're a distributor and create income from those. So you create a real business model, just the writing itself. It's pretty tough. I mean, I have seven different revenue streams. I could never survive. I mean, yes, my books have sold very, very well and put me into a category, probably the top 3% of authors in terms of book sales and income from those, but I could never survive just from my writing income alone. I mean, I really couldn't. I mean, I don't know what kind of figures you have in mind, but my books selling the kind of copies that they do, uh, do not create millions and millions of dollars in annual income for me. I mean, 99% of the articles that I write, where you see them in well-known magazines like AARP or Success Magazine, 99% of all the articles I write are done with no compensation at all. They're just part of my marketing plan to expose people to the 48 Days community where they then come back and they get involved doing other things that do create income. So yes, I love the fact that you want to write. Yes, you can be paid as a writer. But don't frustrate yourself into thinking that in six months time, you're going to be creating full-time income for your writing. I have never seen that happen. I know people whose names you would recognize, who write all the time, who realize they can't make full-time income just from writing. It requires other things. Then you can move toward the time when you're going to be, well, hey, we'll include this right here, you can eventually move toward the time when you're if doing I this. Had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, well, I'd buy you a house. Okay, well, we could do a lot of things if you have a million dollars. And there are a lot of ways to get there. You know, I got a question here I'm going to get to in a little bit where somebody questioned my always talking about making a million dollars. You know, why can't you be content making $30,000? She makes a good case for it. I'll share that with you here in a little bit. Well, here's a question from Will who says, I love the podcast. In them, you sometimes mention interviews you've done with various people. Can we listen to them on the 48 Days site? No, you know, we we just don't capture all of those. I do lots of interviews. I mean, I would bore you to death if you did, if you listened to all the interviews that I do, I mean, because I do interviews pretty much every single day. Uh, When I'm traveling, I usually schedule not doing live interviews because I prefer doing them on a landline or using Skype rather than my cell phone. But when I'm in town, pretty much every day I do interviews, radio and podcast with the thousands of those being done these days, there's a lot of opportunities. You can do the same. I do those for marketing, but I don't do those to create new content that we then capture and put on our site. Just too much out there. No, I don't capture all those. Well, this one comes from Robert. Robert says, I went to my chamber of commerce breakfast last week. Now this is a pretty interesting setup here and and it really touches on an important point. That's why I pulled this question out because it touches on a really important issue 
that sometimes will misdirect us. So listen to this. Robert says, I went to my Chamber of Commerce breakfast last week. They had a Tony Robbins kind of speaker there. In a nutshell, he said, if we aren't doing well, it's because of our belief system. I know the most effective sales is face-to-face, but I'm quiet, so I'm pursuing passive methods. Should I learn to be a face-to-face salesperson? According to the speaker I heard, I need to eliminate the thoughts that prevent me from pursuing face-to-face sales and move forward. What do you think? Robert, if this guy was actually implying what you're suggesting here, he's full of baloney. It, it, no, no, you don't need to become a face-to-face salesperson to be successful. This is one of those fallacies. I mean, we hear this even in, in martial arts. You always work where you're weakest. You just spend your time working there. Well, what if we really did that? I mean, I, I happen to despise accounting, financial data. Uh, do I like to make money? Yeah, but I can do a, a five-minute glance at a P&L at the end of the month. I don't want to be immersed in financial accounting things. I hate that stuff. Now, fortunately, you know, I'm a bookkeeper who understands it and loves it. It's her gift, thank goodness, but it sure isn't mine. So what if I just spent a lot of time working there? It's a weak area of mine, so I spend a lot of time there. I'm never going to be great in that area. I'm going to be mediocre at best. And what's happened in the meantime where I haven't spent time refining and polishing and improving my skills in the area where I'm strong, they've probably gotten weaker as well. So I end up with a lot of things where I'm just mediocre. That's a bunch of crap. Don't do that. Here's my rule of thumb for you. Work where you're strongest 80% of the time. Work where you are learning 15% of the time work where you are weak 5% of the time. Now that may not sound like what you were taught in school or perhaps even in sports work where you're strongest 80% of the time work where you're learning 15% of the time work where you're weak 5% of the time. Now, do I agree that selling opens a door for financial opportunity like nothing else? Absolutely. Do I, though, think that you need to learn how to be the blue suede shoe salesman where you go out and you grab somebody's hand or you stop 30 people in the airport or in the mall and you give them a sales presentation? No, you don't need to do that. If you're quiet, you can sell like crazy. You can knock it out of the park financially. You can make a million dollars a year selling without ever being face-to-face, nose-to-nose, or belly-to-belly. Those are just those generic first thing that come to mind kind of sales opportunities. You can create sales strategies. You can test. You can do split run kind of testing in your market. You can try out a product at $19.95 and at $69.95, the same product. You can track all those things that you will do well as an introverted, introspective, quiet, analytical, detailed, logical kind of person that somebody who's in your face cheerleader on front of the stage is never going to have the patience to do. Yeah, you can be extremely effective in selling, but you don't have to change the way that you're doing it. You can be behind the scenes and you can do a whole lot of selling. I mean, look at what I do at 48 days. While I'm talking here, there's a whole lot of ka-chings going on in our bank account. Thank goodness. I tell people I'm fond of Swiss dollars, sales while I sleep soundly. I have systems in place. But those systems create sales that go on 168 hours a week without me ever talking to or seeing a customer. 
their systems that are in place. You can do the same. No, if somebody tells you you need to do something that's totally foreign to your natural characteristics by just facing the fear or changing your false beliefs, nah, they're feeding you a bunch of baloney. Uh, that, that's not the way it works. Well, Scott from uh, Massachusetts says, I'm currently a teacher, but I'm not completely happy or fulfilled in this position. Recently, an opportunity has availed itself for me to become involved in the next state's test making design development sector. This is a new and interesting opportunity that will allow me to grow professionally and also may aid me in my grand plan of starting my own line of test preparation materials. This new position will have the same pay and benefits as my teaching position, but of course will require regular work hours. I'll be getting home to my family later and it has only two weeks vacation rather than the two months plus that I have as a teacher now. My teacher colleagues think it's insane to give up those perks for a normal job. What do you think? Thanks. Well, what I think, what I think, Scott, is this. You begin with the end in mind. This is real easy to address. If you go to work for this company and you're losing a couple months of vacation and you're coming home later every day and you're getting the same pay, I mean, then you have to really question, yeah, is this really a wise move? But if you want to develop your own test material company anyway, one of the greatest, easiest, lowest risk ways to prepare yourself for being in your own business is to go to work for a company that's already doing what you ultimately want to do. That's what you're talking about doing here. So if you go to work for this company and you work there a year and you learn all the ins and outs about developing test materials and you know the markets, you know the challenges of selling to the academic community. I mean, whatever it is you can learn there, you learn on their nickel. That's great preparation. And there's nothing deceitful or dishonest about this incidentally either. I don't mean to present it in a way where you're going to take advantage of somebody's company and then bolt and do your own thing. That's a very legitimate transition. Any company owner knows that there's a high likelihood that somebody comes through his company and is very successful is going to go on and do their own thing. I mean, I've had that happen countless times as anybody else who has a company has experience. So begin with the end in mind. If three years from now you want to have your own company, then taking this position is not an end in and of itself. It's not your dream career, but it's a reasonable tool to get you to where you are headed. So ignore what your colleagues are saying. They're not looking long-term at your goals and your path. You make that determination. This sounds like it may in fact be a great fit. Well, here, here, let me, let me just, uh, as I glance over the next questions here, let me throw in another little bit of tidbit here from one of my favorite groups, U2. You know, the process of looking, searching. Hey, a lot of us are singing this song, you know, and even in my own path, I mean, I, I'm doing a lot of things that I really love doing, but I'm constantly reading searching, talking, going to workshops and seminars. Not that I'm some on some you know insatiable quest and I'm never happy, but I just know there are so many opportunities out there that I can't keep track of them all. So I'm constantly looking for ways to improve my learning, improve the opportunities that are sitting right there ready for me to grab them if I'm prepared. That old thing, luck, when preparation meets opportunity, I'm continuing to increase my preparation. 
Chris from Illinois says, I figured out the next step in my career and I'm actively working through my transition plan to be a financial advisor. I'm currently going to school at night for a CFP certified financial planner program. The challenge is I hate my current job. My passion for my job has waned over the years and my new manager has made it nearly impossible to get any enjoyment out of my work. The challenge is my new job will require a significant pay cut. I've been working through Dave Ramsey's baby step number two. So I depleted my emergency fund, which I'm quickly trying to rebuild. I calculated I need to work another nine months to build up cash reserved equal to a six month fund. How do I stay engaged to work when I've lost interest and my boss is difficult to deal with? Well, my advice is, is pretty much like the previous question. Don't see your work now as your dream career. It obviously is not. Don't see it as this is the way it's always going to be, but rather is this a reasonable vehicle to get you to where you want to go? I mean, we all have those times of transition when we do something primarily to allow us to stay on the path toward our ultimate goal. So if you can be there in nine months, that goes by in the blink of an eye. That's not a reasonable time to go get another job, knowing that you're just moving toward being a certified financial planner anyway. So where you are is probably the best position to stay. If in fact it's going, if you're going to be out anyway in nine to 12 months or even 18 months, I would say stay where you are, make the best of it. Your boss doesn't have to love you. You don't have to love him or her, but it may be a reasonable vehicle to keep you on track for where you're going. Also, just as an aside here, I want to point out, be clear that with a CFP certification, certified financial planner, be clear that as a financial advisor, you're going to be selling products. I've seen a lot of people go toward CFP thinking they're just going to have the warm fuzzies of sitting down with people all day and giving them counseling and advice about how to handle their investments. I mean, that's part of it, but you're going to spend 80% of your time getting somebody in the seat across from you and your compensation is going to come. It would be very rare for you to create any kind of reasonable compensation as a fee for service. So people pay you for your advice. People are used to getting financial advice free. Well, but they also are smart enough to realize when you're giving them free advice, if you're a banker, you're selling them services. If you're in the insurance business, you're selling them services. If you're a financial planner, financial planners who make a lot of money, make it because they're selling products. They're selling annuities, mutual funds, all those stocks, all those other kind of things. They make their money on the back end by selling products. So be realistic about what you're headed toward positioning yourself as a financial advisor. Well, Kevin asked, this is interesting. Kevin asked from Utah says, I own a small remodeling and renovation company here in Utah. I've loved working with my God given talents to help others get what they want and supply a real value for those that I work for. Okay. Remodeling renovation company. Kevin's question is this. How do I get past the nobody cares as much as I do mentality and get to the point that I can let others do the physical work while I work on my business instead of in my business? Yours in the pursuit of excellence, Kevin. Golly, great question, Kevin, and something that every business owner in the world has been confronted with. How do you get past the point of doing everything in your business and all of a sudden you're you're bogged down doing just that. You don't have any opportunity to create a vision for your business or grow it. The terminology you're using where you say you want to get to the point where you're working 
on your business rather than in it makes me think you've probably already been exposed to Michael Gerber's books, The E-Myth. Michael Gerber has written several books. Choose the one that fits you, but certainly go through the principles again, how to move yourself out of working in your business to working on your business. One of the rule of thumbs that I've used is that if somebody else can do something 70% as well as I can, it's probably time to turn it over. Now that's not being egotistical, but like you are seeing things in your business that probably you can do quicker, more efficiently and better than anybody else you've hired. Well, that's not unexpected. If somebody really can do it as quick as you knows as much about it as you does it as beautifully as you do, they're probably going to do their own business. So be comfortable with the idea you should be the visionary leader. You should be the planner. You should be the communicator with, with the customers that you have. If you do those things well, start turning over some of the actual physical labor to other people so you can keep moving your business forward. There've been a lot of times when I have turned things over and then I have to bite my tongue because I think, my gosh, what that person spent eight hours doing, I could have done in 30 minutes. Well, that's okay. But again, if I do everything myself, it puts an immediate ceiling on what I'm ever able to accomplish in my business. Stay focused on what it is that you do that no one else can do. That's the way you grow a business. Well, again, you're listening to Dan Miller and the 48 Days Online radio show. You got a question, you can shoot it in on the podcast link at 48days.com. Let me pick out just a couple more here. We're going to be real short on time. This one comes from Connie. I want to get this one in yet. My husband and I have both taught in our Christian education for over in Christian education for over 20 years. We'd like to move on to other careers, but our principal always seems to get another year out of us. He says we're in the, in the ministry and should be willing to work for a little. We should just let God be our provider. We've been married over 30 years, live in our first house, drive old cars, buy used clothing, etc. We've adopted several children, want them to have a better lifestyle and change our family tree. Is it a sin to leave education if it will disappoint the students and parents? Our principal is our age, but he has a big new house, new car, etc. We're so frugally fatigued. Yeah, that's a great term. We're frugally fatigued. How do you stop the guilt of moving on from ministry job? Well, I'm going to condense my response. I mean, this, this is your life. This is not about being selfish when you're trying to release the best talents God has given you and to maximize the using of those talents. That's good stewardship. And to stay in something where you know you're being undercompensated, yeah, there's no rationale for doing that over a long period of time. And to have somebody else telling you, just prevent, just depend on God to provide for you. Well, yeah, you know, ask them if that's, you know, if God paid their mortgage payment last month, no, no, this is theological murky waters here. Ultimately God provides, but we better be engaged in the game because God does his work through his people. He doesn't do it by just using us as chess pieces or turning us into robots. We better be engaged in this process or things don't get done. I would recommend that you read my friend Rabbi Daniel Lapin's book, Thou Shall Prosper. There's a section in there where he talks about the Saturday night service that a family has. And what they do in that service is they have a cup, they have a goblet sitting on top of a saucer and they pour wine into that goblet until it is full and overflowing. 
Here's from his book. I'm going to read a, a sentence here. This overflowing cup symbolizes the intention to produce during the week ahead, not only sufficient to fill one's own cup, but also an excess that will allow overflow for the benefit of others. In other words, I am obliged to first fill my cup and then continue pouring as it were, so that I will have sufficient to give away to others, thus helping to jumpstart their own efforts. Judaism views attending to your own vineyard, not as shameful, but as a moral obligation. There you go. You have a moral obligation to take care of yourself and your family. You give out of the excess. You give out of a full cup. You don't just continue living in poverty, thinking that you're doing a godly service by helping others who are in the same shape you are. Well, it's been a delight having you as part of our audience today. This is Dan Miller. This is 48 Days Online Radio. Thanks for your contributions to the 48days.net community, your involvement in other things that are going on. You know, I want you to live fully, to love without reserve, laugh readily, do the work that you love, start making a difference today. All those things are very possible. This is a great time to be working toward things that you love. Not only work that you love, but the life that you love. Be making deposits of success in those areas of life that you know are significant and meaningful. Be preparing now for the year that you want to have happen in 2012. This is a time to be preparing for work that is meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable. 